Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome back, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com. We're part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we are post-Wimbledon, which means that the great Mats Vlander, seven-time major champion, is back from Europe seven and a half weeks, I'm told, spent time in France, spent time in Sweden, spent time, of course, in London most recently. Also joined by Johnny Levine, who didn't have quite the travel schedule, but Johnny happened to make it to Paris and London as well. Well, I was landlocked here in Denver, Colorado. Matt, let's start with you because this was a tournament that had all kinds of asterisks next to it because of the fact that Wimbledon made the decision to ban the, the Russians and Belarusians, but but actually the Russians may have gotten the last laugh. We'll get back to that in just a minute. The ranking points were taken away. Nick Kyrgios advances to the final without having to play a semi. Let's start with that. Is this going to go down in history as that Wimbledon with Nick Kyrgios? Um, yes, unless he does something again, which if he keeps up what he was doing at Wimbledon, he most probably will. I'm not sure he can manage to play like that on hard courts for for six matches, but on grass, he can certainly do it again. And I don't see any reason why he shouldn't improve every time he comes to Wimbledon. Because with that serve, which uh, I think I've discussed it with a lot of former players at Wimbledon, and we're starting to think that that serve is as good and as effective as Pete Sampras' serve. And in terms of winning a point, point and a half per game, consistently, every service game, uh, the second serve might not be as good. So, yeah, I don't see any reason, Andy, and, and Johnny, uh, that Nick Kyrgios. And I think his behavior is getting better, uh, believe it or not. Every match, it seemed like he was polished a little bit more. I think that the finals, he would have lost it if he didn't play against Novak Djokovic. And I think there was a little bit of respect for Novak. There was maybe some respect for Prince William and Kate, who was sitting there, and their son, George, even though he kind of lost it in one of the changeovers, I'm starting to understand what it is that he's trying to uh, get out of his team, which is, don't let me lose my focus. That's their job. Uh, and it seems that 40 love, he shouldn't need them. But then, of course, he says he does. And is that an excuse? Is he blaming? I don't know. But it doesn't really matter. He, he needs them. And I'm starting to get what he's, what he's uh, trying to accomplish. And he cares. He cares a lot about winning tennis matches, which is unbelievable to find out uh, at 27 years old for me. Johnny, I never thought I would hear Pete Sampras and Nick Kyrgios in the same sentence. Uh, with, with, with respect to the serve, I kind of get it, but that would be about it for me. I mean, that was exactly why Pete had the run at Wimbledon that he did was because he was the anti-Nick Kyrgios. He was totally within himself. He didn't need anybody in his box. He had his parents there once, I think. But other than that, he did this thing on his own. Uh, is, is Nick Kyrgios his worst enemy? And from a business perspective, is Nick Kyrgios ultimately good for tennis? You know, you talk about, you know, Kyrgios with the box and having people around, you know, he doesn't have a coach. 
and uh, a pure tennis coach. And so you got to give the guy a lot of credit for his tennis knowledge and his his smarts on the court. I mean, he he's a thinker more than you think. Um, he's a, he, he strategizes. I believe the guy is has got a high tennis IQ to be able to do what he's done for so long without with the great results without the coach. I think says a lot. How, could he be helped by having a, a good coach? There's no question in my mind he should get a coach. I think it could really help him stabilize him, make him you know think about certain things, weaknesses, and things like that. But he he's really uh, the, uh, an amazing talent. And personally, I've always said. He's great for the game. I'd like to see him temper, you know, the antics and the, the 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 language and things like that. I think he wants to be better because I think, um, you know, he's he. It's important for him with kids. He he loves kids. Uh, I think he's tormented because I, I think he's conflicted that his behavior hurts the kids, but yet it's his way to deflect pressure. So he's got to be able to deal with that better. No question. Okay, so he's got the, the high tennis IQ, Matt, but managing that has to be through emotional management. And that seems to be where Nick drops off precipitously is that the emotional management is not there. And you said it yourself when we talked after the match, for him to absolutely berate the people that care about him the most when there is not a damn thing that they can do to come down on that court and help him close out a 40 love game. Uh, I, I, I don't understand it. I'm not sure what good a coach would do with regard to that kind of behavior, because I doubt any coaches that are out there would have dealt with a player that would have had that kind of emotional syndrome. If you will, is there somebody that you can think of if you could take anybody and put him in Nick Kyrgios's coaching box, a la what we saw Lendl do, with Andy Murray, who would it be for Nick? Uh, first of all, I'm not sure if you guys got all the the um, the quotes and and uh, the remarks that were made from Wimbledon. Obviously, I was there, so I got most of them. And Nick said once he wouldn't want to put that burden on somebody to be his right. coach, which is very interesting. I, I don't think you a coach that sits in his box during matches is going to make any difference at all. But I do think that someone like a let's say John Isner. Someone that has that big serve, that, that has, learned, has taught himself how to play uh, a certain style of tennis in his return games because he holds serve so easily. And he's absolutely ripping second serve returns. Uh, and he goes for the first two. And if they don't go in, then he might chip and charge. So somebody that, that would ex- – I think Nick – the problem with Nick is that he's so good from the baseline. He has such good hands – uh, and I believe he understands tennis extremely well. He moves well. And when he's as fit as he is now, because he played so many matches, I think he fancies himself as a baseliner. And that's what John Isner used to do early in his career. And, and it doesn't matter if, if John Isner is a baseliner. You can't be six foot 11 and be a baseliner for too long. And I think with Nick, I think his serve gets worse with every step he takes at the baseline. So to try and, to try and, and get him to, to realize how much of a pain it is to play against him because of the serve. And, and you must probably need to be not John Isner. I think more. John McEnroe. 
to come in and say, Nick, listen, I, I used to serve pretty big, but I used to win my service games easily. I didn't ace people, but I realized I have to return like this. When I'm serving well, I got to keep the rally short. Pete Sampras, for example, could also be someone who could be there for a week or two and just sort of simplify things for Nick. Nick, you have to understand, everybody hates playing against you because of your serve. But if you allow them to find their rhythm off of your second serve in their own service games, then suddenly they're in the match, whether you're hitting 50 aces in, in a match or, or not, or 50 unreturnable, it doesn't matter. So I think that's where he lost the match against Novak. 1-1, second set, 30-all, and Novak suddenly plays a point that I, it lasts over 20 shots, which he wins. And then he plays another point that lasts over 20 shots. And, and it was amazing, the rallies. And I'm like, wow, Nick can really hang with Novak. Yes, he could for two points, lost them both. And then from that point, it started going, looking like it's going downhill. Yes, he came back in the fourth set. So I think that's what he needs. Somebody very known who has won a lot of Grand Slams because otherwise I don't think he would listen. And I'm not saying he should, but like a John McEnroe, and I know he sort of said he would like to, just for a week or two, Nick, this is what it feels like playing against you. Otherwise, I don't think a coach is going to make any difference, to be honest. I don't either because I don't think that a coach will be around long enough to have to deal with what they would have to deal with. Not a guy that has any respect for himself. Johnny, let's turn the attention to the champion. We're out here. We, we spent 15 minutes on Nick Kyrgios. What about the guy that won the thing? Novak Djokovic. I mean, what a year for him. We go back to Australia. Uh, don't need to rehash all of that other than to say that he got deported in, in uh, trying to win his what ninth or 10th title in Australia Became friends with Nick Kyrgios. Yeah, there you go. He became friends with Nick Kyrgios. Yeah, and so there you go. Nick Kyrgios came out in support of him. Uh, but, Johnny, what was it about Djokovic's march to the final and ultimately uh, ability to fend off this monster game of Kyrgios's that impressed you most? Yeah, I mean, you know, Djokovic just came through in, in, in kind of the fashion that he has done in winning you know, all the other slams, but, you know, in this particular tournament, you know, he, he started off slow in some matches. He lost a, a set in the first round. Um, you know, he lost the first two sets against center. And I have to believe that a lot of people thought that he was going to lose that match, um, you know, for him to come back and pretty much handle center in three straight sets pretty handily was quite an effort. I think, you know, what kind of pressure that is to be down two sets to love, you know, in the quarterfinals against center, you know, and then come back. But that mental toughness um, that, that, that Djokovic has and the athleticism and the, the return of service, I think, I think really the, the shot that won him that final. So, I mean, he's just such a true champion. And, and I think if he can play some more slams, I, I still think, um, you know, he might end up with, mo- with the most. Yeah. He's, he's not going to New York, Matt. He's already said. I don't oh, know yeah, if you've he heard anything. Yeah, he's okay. not. He's not going to New York unless some sort of rules get changed, or unless there's. He said it within hours of winning Wimbledon that he would not be going to New York because of the rules for uh, the United States to not allow uh, foreign foreign people, not just foreign athletes, but well, anybody. what do you mean? He, he, what do you mean? He, he won't. He won't go because he can't. I mean, he would go if he. Well, could. he's saying he's not entering the tournament. Is what he said. I'm not, I'm not, these are not my words. These are his, I'm not entering the U S open. So obviously he feels as though the rules are not going to change. His point is if something doesn't change, he won't be at the U S open, whatever the semantics are. Um, 
it's uh, it's likely Roger Federer is not going to be there. Matt, as a matter of fact, he's dropped out of the rankings for the first time in 25 years. Nadal, as we all three know, now if there's one thing we, we may not have much in common, the three of us with regard to our tennis, certainly I don't with you guys, but I do know from a from a torn uh, uh, ab muscle, I've definitely experienced that. I'm sure you guys both have too. Rafael Nadal is not going to be ready for the U.S. Open if that ab muscle is as bad as we think. There's a chance, Matt, we have a U.S. Open final devoid of Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. The story that was told at the at the Wimbledon was that Rafa in, I believe it was 2009 or 10 or 11, he had a tear uh, that was seven millimeters long and it ended up being 26 millimeters at the end of that tournament. And I don't remember exactly. And it was reported by a uh, a Spanish newspaper. We never brought it up on TV on Eurosport because we weren't really sure, but I'm going to mention it. And now the rumor was that he had a six or seven millimeter tear again. And this is why he pulled out. At the same time, I think Rafa realized, and I know this through um, my um, co-worker, Alex Correcha, who's Spanish, he obviously speaks to, to Rafa quite often. And he said that, no, what Rafa was thinking when he pulled out was basically that he could potentially beat Nick Curious. The way he beat Taylor Fritz, which is he's not 100%, he might be at 80%, and he still beat Taylor Fritz. Uh, his serve was at 80%, I mean 70%. And he might have been able to beat Nick Curious, but he will not beat Novak Djokovic. So uh, why then go and play the finals? Because he did say that I don't want to play because I can't win two more matches in Wimbledon. So was he afraid of the injury, which he threw in there as well? So I'm not really sure. Maybe he caught it in time. Maybe he is still able to go and play a tournament before. uh, I think the Canadian Open is the one he usually goes and plays. I cannot imagine that he's not going to give it a hell of a shot to go to New York. I don't think it matters to him if Novak is there or not. But I do think that he is realizing that if I have any chance whatsoever at all, I, I need to go and play these tournaments because I could have a foot problem. Now I tore my abdominal muscle and I don't think he has any idea what's going to happen next, obviously, because uh, he's most probably a little more worn out than Novak. So I think that what it does to Novak is just fuel him more, I swear. It's going to be like every year he's going to play one or two majors. Uh, he looks, he's 35. He looks 25. He doesn't look 35 at all. None of what he does on the court looks like he's uh, 35 years old. So I think he's got four or five years, which in my book is at least 10, 12 majors. And I think that he has now won 33 out of 68 majors that he's entered. I mean, he's, sorry, in the finals, 33 times out of 68 majors. I mean, that's insane. And, of course, he's won 21 of them. That's unbelievable. So why wouldn't he do that again? Yeah, that's a pretty good clip. He's got four or five more years. We've got two more segments. Don't go away. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We'll talk a little bit more Wimbledon, and then we're going to take a look at what we should look forward to in the hardcourt season leading up to the U.S. Open. Back right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Matt's Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. But most importantly, Let's talk about the tennis. 
you will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. After my clinic with Matt, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. AZ, Mats, and Johnny, and we teased it at the very beginning. We'll deal with it now. Mats, you're the one that brought this to our attention and shed the light on the fact that although Wimbledon decided to ban the Russians and the Belarusians, ultimately, Russian tennis got the last laugh in this thing. Take it from there. Yes. So I think the most important part about the story of uh, Russians and Belarusians being banned is that it was under the guidance of the British government. And that didn't come out when Wimbledon came out. They didn't say that immediately. The only reason I found out is because John McEnroe and Tim Henman had an argument during the French Open while we were all working for Eurosport. Ah. And McEnroe said something like, what the hell? Why did Wimbledon ban the Russians, man? And where is Belarus anyway? So Tim Henman <laughs> uh, sent him a... Um, a digital map of Europe on his phone. He said, John, it's here. It's next to Russia. Jokingly, of course. But uh, so that that came out. And Tim said, no, it's under the guidance of the British government. Of course, Wimbledon could have gone against it. So that's the first thing. They didn't. They followed the, the guidance rules. And then obviously the ATP and the WTA pulled out uh, and all the points are gone. Now we end up with, because Novak lost all his points from last year's Wimbledon, and he couldn't regain them even though he won this year. So he's gone. Daniil Medvedev jumps into number one in the world. Of course, Daniil Medvedev is Russian. Unbelievable. And then Elena Rybakina, who won the women's singles. Uh, and obviously, I think that's why her victory celebrations were so subdued, I swear. I'm nearly 100% sure. She's born in Russia. She lived in Russia officially until she was 18. Uh, and then she was helped and funded by the, the government in Kazakhstan because they're, they're crazy for tennis. Uh, and rightfully so. She played Olympics for them. And she then later uh, joined uh, and moved to Kazakhstan. Um, her parents could not come to Wimbledon because they are uh, still in Russia because they couldn't get out. So should you say anything? No, it's just ironic that she ends up being the champion. And it's well known to the fans. It's well known to to uh, Duchess of Cambridge, Kate, who gave the trophy. Wow. Uh, that, you know, and, and it was well known to Elena Rybakina that I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to have any victory celebrations here. This is so weird to me. And then she actually cried in the press conference when she was asked why her parents or they couldn't make it. Ah. And she started crying and she said, okay, you, are these emotions good enough for you? Are you happy now? She said to the press. Uh, in a nice way, in a nice way. So I think that she held it all in uh, and must, was very subdued. So it's just ironic, which is a wrong word to use in the desperate situation that we're in the world uh, and in Russia and Ukraine. But uh, it's so, who knows what, who did the right thing and the wrong thing. But it certainly didn't, um, didn't pan out uh, in, in the way that I think 
all the organizing bodies were hoping that it would. Johnny, that's the Russian, to some extent, side of the story, if you will, on the American side of the story, which you being the one that's always looking out, you know, for the American players when it comes to the Arizona Tennis Classic, you like to showcase those guys. Maybe the match of the tournament was the quarterfinal between Taylor Fritz and Rafael Nadal. So start with with Taylor Fritz's effort there, but also let's touch on the fact that we had six players, six American men that were seated. We had a great match between Coco Goff and Amanda Anasimova, and those two both look like they're moving into the upper crust of the women's game if they're not already there. But let's start with that uh, with that Taylor Fritz effort and that match against Rafa. When you look at uh, Rafael Nadal in that match, it's it's hard to to believe that he won it because it seemed like he was out of it. Uh, his his box was looking for him when he took that break uh, to stop and not continue on. They thought he was you know too hurt to play and was going to injure himself further. He goes to the uh, you know takes the break and goes off the court, comes back. And it's like he's he's brand new again. It's it's like the guy has nine lives. So, you know, that that's my take on that one. I mean, you have to give you know some of the other Americans some some kudos in, in Nakashima right. for his effort to get to the round of 16 and Tommy Paul to get to the round of 16 and Francis Tiafo, you know, losing a really tough five setter to Goffin in the in the round of 16. I mean, the Americans fared very, very well and um, they have a lot to be proud of. But Taylor Fritz. Even though he lost that match, and and I believe he should have won it, uh, has a lot to be proud of too. Because you're playing, you know, one of the greatest of all time. It, you know, in 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 a Grand Slam quarterfinal where, you know, five sets and 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 Nadal has such experience. So um, you, you got to hand it to Nadal and 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 get, still give give Fritz a lot of credit for for what he did in that tournament. When we take the fact that they did have that nice run, and Johnny mentions. Nakashima and all these guys in the round of 16, Fritz in the quarters. And then we talk and we go back, Matt's, to the fact that the big three could potentially all not be in New York. This may be a golden opportunity, this U.S. Open, for American men's tennis. Although if none of the big three are there, then we sort of get back to that whole sort of Dominic team, Sasha Zverev situation, which it was kind of a forgettable final to say the least. But does this open up the door for the Americans to maybe, uh, you know, show up in that final weekend? Yeah, absolutely huge. I mean, it's true that Dominic team, yes, he won uh, with Novak being uh, defaulted with Roger, not there uh, Rafa as well, but look what it did to Dominic team. I mean, he, he, for him, it was huge right. for him. It was so big that in fact, he lost his motivation and still hasn't quite gotten it back. Sasha Tavera hasn't won a major since then. So for him, the loss was huge. So I really don't think that makes any difference. And I've played uh, a lot of majors when, when uh, some of the best guys have not been there. I've played the French Open when Connors didn't play one year, played the French when Landel didn't play, uh, uh, played Wimbledon when Agassi didn't play. So uh, I don't think it matters. I think that you need to take that opportunity. And, and I think Taylor Fritz is most probably the guy. I think that he's kicking himself still for not beating Nadal in that match for sure. 
very quickly on Nadal, doesn't when he's when you're injured, you find another way to play tennis. It doesn't mean you are worse. You might even be better off because you're taking more risks, even though you can't serve full. So I don't know if Nadal's level drops because he's injured. To be honest, I don't. I, don't, I think he just changes his tactics. But for Taylor Fritz, I think he's the natural to go to American favorite, and uh, I think he'd be tough to beat. I really do. I think grass is a good surface for him. Clay maybe not quite as good. Harcourt way better. Like way better. Uh, and uh, you have to be good to be Taylor Fritz in five sets because he doesn't get tired. He moves much better on Harcourt's. He's got strengths everywhere. And it's very difficult to exploit his weaknesses, which is the little game, the one-handed slice and the sort of chips that you have to hit on the grass court. You don't have to do that at the US Open. So I think it's a golden opportunity. And I think they need to, to uh, yes, step up and, uh, and a lot of players, not just the Americans, but this got to take Andre Rublev, for example, if he's allowed to play. These guys that are six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven in the world, great hardcore players, got to take this chance if the big three are not there. And Andy, when we come Andy, back, we're going to talk a little women's tennis. Sorry, Johnny, I had to cut you off. That's the way it goes around here. I'm the man. I run this thing, not you. So just sit in your <laughs> seat and mute your f-ing button, and that's the way it goes. And that's where we're going to break. Az out on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Hey guys, Andy Zoden here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm excited because we're joined by Courtney Ward. And Courtney, you are in sports nutrition and you are with Body Fuse. Talk about how people north of the age of 45 are keeping fit and some of the things that they're doing to look like you do. Well, hey, thank you, Andy. I so appreciate you having me on the podcast. And yeah, my company, Body Fuse, it's a sports nutrition company. And I'm 48 years old. And first and foremost, I think we just simply after 40, 45 years old, we have to keep moving, doing the things you like to do and support that with sports nutrition. And the Body Fuse lineup has everything to help you from pre-workout intra-workout and post-workout. And I think, you know, post-40 folks, it becomes very critical for us to support our bodies, both nutritionally and physically. So, you know, speaking to weight loss, the Body Fuse lineup has some great products uh, that specifically help to increase resting metabolic rate. And that's, uh, that's a product called a thermogenics. And moving your body is key as well and doing it smart and supporting that with a uh, post workout is, is also very very important as we as we get older. How do folks get a hold of you? Our demographic of the folks that listen to our show happen to be right in your sweet spot, and I think it's a, a kind of a match made in heaven. My company is a company called Exclusive Nutrition Products, and I own uh, within Exclusive Nutrition we have basically three brands. Body Fuse is what we've been talking about is. Is, is one of them. Black Dragon Labs is the second and Next Level Nutrition is the third. And our websites, uh, Body Fuse websites is bodyfuseusa.com and Black Dragon Labs is blackdragon-labs.com. She is Courtney Ward and she is a sports nutritionist and a tennis player. Courtney, thank you very much. Well, thanks so much to you. I appreciate it, Andy. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I go to you, Johnny, because I went out being rude to you, 
And so I will start out being nice to you and say, you made a, a comment that had, had uh, Taylor Fritz gotten through Nadal, you feel like he hits too many balls in the court and that he would have gotten by Kyrgios. Talk about why you think that would have been the case, because Kyrgios certainly seemed like the guys that hit a lot of balls in the court didn't have enough weapons to really hurt him the way he was serving. I think that Kyrgios might have had a meltdown. And I think that Fritz really, what makes you think that I, I don't Well, know. <laughs> I just think the pressure would have been just no, so great obviously. to get to the final. I mean, and, and I, and I look at, I think Kyrgios is a better player on grass, no question, but the confidence that, that, that Fritz would have had, had he gotten through that match um, he's been in bigger moments uh, than, than, than Kyrgios in the last couple few years. And I just believe, you know, I actually, you know, texted someone that had Fritz gotten through that, I, I would have seen him. I think we would have seen him in the final. If Kyrgios wins that tournament, Matt, not having had to play a semi, how big an asterisk is that not having to get by Nadal and to go right to the final and play Novak Djokovic, albeit beat the guy who'd won the thing six times, three in a row. Is it still a legitimate major championship win for Kyrgios? Well, ask Jim Courier, because in 1992, Jim Courier won the Australian Open and Richard Krejcik uh, gave him a walkover in the semis. And that's okay. the only time in the Open era that it has happened before that we only had one men's semis. So I, there is no asterisk next to it. I mean, there might be if you find an old scorecard uh, or a draw sheet from, from, uh, from the Wimbledon in 2022, 20 years down the road or 50 years down the road and it says walkover and then maybe there it says, okay, second time. So no, I don't think it makes any, t- to be honest, doesn't make any difference. I don't know if it was good for Nick Kyrgios to not play a match, but I agree with you, Johnny. I have to say, I think that uh, uh, Telefritz would have been a perfect opponent for Nick Kyrgios to kind of go, ooh, you know what? I'm not sure I'm ready for a Wimbledon final. Uh, semis is great. Semis is 10 times better than the quarters. I'm not sure I can go on center court. I had a good run, blah, 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 blah. So I think there's a good chance too. Plus Taylor Fritz serves uh, big enough where he can hold serve. So I agree with you. Um, Obviously, I think when you see Taylor Fritz lose to Nadal, you have to wonder um, if he needs to work on a few things, uh, things that are uncomfortable for him to be able to win the U.S. Open. Uh, and maybe to beat Nick Kyrgios. But I think you're right. I think Nick Kyrgios was lucky that he didn't have to play semis. Although, does he beat Nadal if Nadal is injured? And then does he get more confidence? Not sure. I think this was a, nearly a perfect scenario for Nick Kyrgios. But I, he could have, uh, I feel he could have um, gone nuts against Taylor Fritz when no one was watching, so to speak, in the semis. I, I, I do. But that didn't happen. Nick Kyrgios was close to winning Wimbledon. And uh, I think that we will see him back in the last four in another major within 12 months. Johnny, let's, before we turn our attention to the women, we talked about the fact that this could be a golden opportunity for the American men. Should the big three not make an appearance in New York, but then there are two other players that come to mind that could also potentially really benefit and maybe break through and win their first major. And I talk about two guys that actually played each other at Wimbledon and Yannick Sinner ended up upsetting, in my opinion, Carlos Alcaraz. Could those two guys be licking their chops at an opportunity to play a U.S. Open devoid of the top three? Yes, absolutely. The two of those guys um, could be the future 
um, are the future of men's tennis. I, I, I believe those two will win grand slams for sure. And I believe they, um, are probably two of the favorites to do it sooner than anyone else. Um, I mean, Medvedev already has one. Zverev, you know, has got the injury and he's really gets the yips when it gets, you know, far into the tournament, he's got some work to do on that second serve and on the mental side to, to, to come through. He won the Olympic gold medal, but that's still not a slam in my book, but um, yeah, I mean, center, you're right. Andy center and Alcaraz are the guys to watch and, and they could do some damage at the U S open for sure. Zverev's a little yippy. It seems like Tsitsipas, you might be able to say the same about him as well. Matt, let's talk about Serena Williams, just because I keep getting asked about her and people still want to talk about her. Uh, a lackluster performance. You were a little more impressed with her effort against Harmony Tan than a lot of people were. There were a lot of people that felt that that was a cringeworthy level of tennis. What did you see out there from her in that one that one match at Wimbledon? To be honest, I'm going to say that people that thought that was cringeworthy in terms of a level to level tennis, they have no idea what they're talking about. Okay, but you have got to be there on site. And the difference between her um, beating Harmony 10 and not winning is a couple of points. And then Harmony 10 actually makes it to the round of 16. Uh, and she beats a couple of really good players. So I thought the level was okay. And I'm only saying this because I have been in a similar, not in the same situation, but I also took a couple of years off. And I came back and I was really close in level. But I was, only got to be ranked 41 in the world at, the, at my highest after a couple of years off. And I beat the top 10, Kafelnikov, Wayne Ferreira in the same tournament, Canadian Open. And I was beating top 10 guys, uh, but I was also losing to other guys. So my level was right there. My emotional state was not uh, predictable to me. Like I could walk on the court and say, you know what, I don't actually care. And what impressed me with Serena, because the level, it's such a small difference in the level. In terms of movement, most probably a 10% difference. And that's a... A big difference but the emotional state is what I was talking about is that she cared she was happy in the press conference uh, she said things like oh I never really thought about retiring or continuing I was just taking care of my family and playing a bit of tennis so I think that she's she's uh, making a statement that I'm not back to win grand slams and that's not why we play tennis to begin with. We play tennis because we enjoy it, pursue our passion, and we try to improve. And winning is a byproduct of all that. And I think Serena is at the beginning of that path again. That's where I'd like to see Serena at the beginning of the path, whether she's 40, 35, 30, or 45 years old. I like where she is uh, in her emotional um professional state of mind so dying to see her play at the u.s open and i have zero expectations for her in terms of her tennis or level but i have expectations in terms of her uh, body language and her attitude and i um, i bet you it's positive as hell okay so that's serena williams johnny igish fontek has to be mentioned because she kind of you know the the the, the win streak kind of went away in unceremonious fashion i mean Elisa Cornet, a journeywoman player, a nice player. Uh, uh, Cornet, always somebody that will keep you honest and hit a lot of balls back and defends the court very well. Very crafty player. Maybe just kind of a poor woman's version of Svantec to a certain extent. Not weapons like that, but but a good mover and a good thinker on the court. But six four six two was it just a matter of at some point in time this thing had to end? This win streak for her. 
probably the pressure, you know, and, and, and maybe um, she was feeling it. Uh, you know, there are a lot of these players are so the, the women's game is so deep. And if you're just, you know, the mental's off a little bit and maybe your game's just a tad off. And, you know, it, it used to be where the top few women, you know, would get through these early rounds and get to the semis before anything hit them. And it just isn't that way anymore. And there's, it's so deep and, and, and it just, it, it makes us really appreciate the women's game so much that anyone can win to, you know, a gal like Cornet, who is a, uh, really a veteran on the tour um, coming up with probably the biggest win of her career. And yeah, it's not that surprising. Ian. Yeah. Okay. Matt's next American player, male or female to win a major championship. Um, I was asked this on television the other night. And as soon as you say, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I said, but I want to hear your answer first and compare it to mine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's between Amanda Anisimova and Coco Goff, to be honest. Um, now, who is has the upper hand? I think in their head-to-head, I think Amanda Anisimova is a little bit of a sort of a big sister um, who does not lose to Coco Goff because I'm two years older and I'm just not allowing that to happen. Uh, at the same time as I think Coco most probably has a better chance to consistently make it through to the later rounds of majors uh, on pretty much all the three, on, on the, all the three surfaces and all the four majors for the next seven to 10 years. Cause with athleticism, she can get through. Uh, and with Amanda, I'm not sure if that's the case. If she has a bad day, ball striking wise, she's mentally very strong. But to me, I would say it's between those two. I don't think we have a man, a uh, male player that is uh, knocking on the door quite as much as those guys. But at the same time, I think, to be honest, we, we named him Taylor Fritz is, is not far away uh, to me. He's, he's right there. He believes it. Um, I think that players have enough respect for him. But, yeah, I, I go Coco Goff for Amanda Anisimova. I'd be interested to know in who you picked, Andy. I picked Goff. I took off, okay. yeah, and I, I I talked about those two. First of all, I said that I thought that it would be easier to win a major because they're best of three on the women's side, and to you know bust through and and win a major, or, you know, on the men's side, having to win best of five set matches is a little little more of a uh, you know of a, of a tall order. Uh, so I did go with Goff because she'd been to the finals of the French already, and she seems like she's less likely to get in her own way mentally and emotionally and a little bit younger, Johnny, now that we've basically kind of come to the conclusion that on the women's side, it's likely Goff or Anna Samova on the men's side. Is it, is it easy enough to say Fritz because he's come the closest so far, or could you go out on a limb and say, you know, Riley Opelka goes nuts with the serve on grass sometime or on a hard court and maybe makes a huge run or Francis TFO with all of that athletic ability and how he could get the New York crowd behind him is he a guy is Tommy Paul a guy who just kind of goes out there and floats around the court and hits all these incredible shots is he the guy or or is it all are they all about the same well I I first of all you know when I look at Isner and and uh Opelka um I I think it's going to be very very difficult uh for guys like that and it's been proven with Isner because you would have thought Isner would have had much better results in the slams but it's five sets for guys it's, that are seven feet tall, uh, the physicality of that is just brutal. I, I just don't see it at all. The other guys, um, 
you know, Fritz, you know what? He got close at Wimbledon and you never know what could have happened if he had gotten through. But I, I, unfortunately, I don't believe that these guys are, um, uh, you know, are, are looking to win a slam. I don't know. I mean, they're looking to win a slam, but I don't know that it's, that they're capable. I have, I don't know that one of those guys really will, will be, will win a slam. I, I think the odds are against it. Um, uh, maybe someone will come through, but you never know. Could Corda come out, you know? Um, yeah, that's right. We didn't mention him. Let's hope that uh, someone will surprise us. All right, Matt, what's your schedule like as far as New York? You were in Europe doing the turn with the French in Wimbledon. You work in, you know, the U.S. Open for Eurosport. With everything that's gone on the last two, three years, nobody really ever knows where you are in the world. Will you be on the ground in New York? Johnny, I know you will be. Matt, what about you? I will be in on the grounds at uh, Flushing Meadows as well, okay. Uh, okay. working for Eurosport and um, uh, be running around in the grounds with the camera following uh, me and doing some uh, little tidbits between matches and sets and doing some interviews with the players. And uh, yeah, really fun, just like I did at Wimbledon, just like at the French Open. So we're kind of back to uh, being on site for for at least three out of the four majors. So strain open, maybe not, maybe in the studio in London. But yeah, it's so nice and, and it's not for me. It's just to see the players and to talk to them. I don't know if you guys, and I, very quickly before I close out, we, I interviewed Stefanos Tsitsipas and I brought up that the ATP is going to do a trial run with no coach, with allowing coaching. So I said, Stefanos, right. I'm asking all the players, what do you think? Uh, is it a good idea to allow coaching? And he looks at me and he says, Bad idea, bad idea. The worst idea I've ever heard. They shouldn't allow coaching. They shouldn't even let them into the ground. In fact, the players should have to do everything themselves, all on our own. Don't talk to anybody. And he was laughing his butt off the whole time. And it was most, I'm like, oh my God, that's Stefano Tsitsipas? He was so funny and he was so loose. And this is the day before he played, no, two days before he played Nick Curious. I bet you it wasn't that loose after. But um, so that's the connection that you, that you get when you're on site. Because I'm, in the end, I'm a former player and these guys are present players. And there's a certain respect and uh, a line that you don't cross. And that is what's so fun uh, going to these majors is to just get, get a second or two with these guys and joke around a little bit, whether it's on air or not. So yeah, can't wait to go to the open. All right, Johnny. So that plays right into your hands because you want to get some of these young players. We're going to do that on the show. The next next couple of shows, we're going to get some guys. We're going to bring in some players. I say we go after Stefano Tsitsipas because if he's talking about the fact that they shouldn't allow coaching in the stands, he just became the funniest guy on tour, if you ask me. And I think everybody understands why. Okay, hardcore season is upon us. Wimbledon and the French are behind us. I'm AZ Andy Zoden, along with Seven-time major champion, Mats V. Lander. Two-time Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. This is KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Look forward to seeing you guys out there soon.